Hello, I'm Sam Clements, and welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. This is a podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime and is entirely curated by guests on this podcast. Today, we're joined by Chris Butler, writer and director of Missing Link. Chris also co wrote Kubo and the Two Strings, co directed Paranorman, and you work at the stop motion powerhouse Leica Studios. Thank you for having me. You've just come off the, the back of the release of Missing Link, which was in cinemas earlier this year, and it's now on home video. Yeah. How's this year been for you when you look back at it? Oh, it's nuts. I think when you start making a movie, you, the last thing that you think about is the release of it. You know, you're just concentrating on making the thing. Mm. And certainly in animation, most people, I think, who work in animation are kind of reclusive uh, misanthropic individuals who don't get out much and then suddenly you're, you're being whisked around the world on a publicity tour and talking a lot about yourself and the movie and it's 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 very weird it's a completely different part of your brain it's been quite a, an extensive tour it feels like and um, we we've just had the film back in cinemas in in december and it was released sort of in the spring it must be quite fun you know actually being able to talk about the film because there must be so many years where i'm working on a thing it's about this <laughs> <laughs> yeah it is it's good and i think you know, after the movies come out, and certainly when it comes around to award season, you you do get the opportunity to talk about it and and really share your experience with other people and with people who are genuinely interested. I think that's the great thing about doing the award season stuff. A lot of the people that you're talking to are actually interested to hear what you've got to say and I, I love that I think also you know I was saying to you earlier when you're making an animated movie as a director I think it's your responsibility to hide the medium from from the audience what you want is for the audience to look at the screen and be compelled by the story and the characters you don't want them to look at the screen and say how cool is that puppet? So it's nice after the release to kind of pull the puppets out and say look at this cool thing we made. The nice thing about that is you've got basically a cast that you can produce any time. You can carry you them around in a box. <laughs> they're, they're always available for you. <laughs> and yeah, and, and can be hand luggage. <laughs> but they're also quite difficult. Well, I mean, we're sat here next to Mr. Link and, you know, so far going so well, but I don't want to upset him. <laughs> <laughs> He's happy to be here. <laughs> so yeah, I was wondering how, because you, you know, you wrote and directed this film, what, what's the conversation been like with the audience that you've, that you've spoken to and you've met as you've been doing the publicity? Uh, a question that always comes up is like, where did the idea come from? come from originally and the truth is I have like uh, a bunch of notebooks that I've carried around with me for years and I've got about 10 ideas probably not more than that mm -hmm. and I just keep going back to them and tweaking them and I'll lose interest and then move on to another one and over the years you know I just keep dipping back in and uh, one of those ideas was this Indiana Jones meets Sherlock Holmes meets planes trains and automobiles which was the the you know the kind of concept for missing link and it felt the right time to do this so people are always interested in like how how did you come up with this story about this lonely Bigfoot. And I think, you know, most people who work in animation are essentially adults who have never grown up. I'm still kind of thinking up stories the way I did when I was a kid. The other thing that, of course, they, they want to find out about is how we actually made the thing. And that's why it's cool to, you know, 
take around puppets and show people like physically show them like what went into one of these movies you know uh, we get asked endless technical questions about how you build a puppet or how you build a set because i think people actually can't believe that we did it you know it's all there are always I think it's equal parts impressed and kind of horrified by the amount of work and detail that goes into making one of these things. Because it is, it's exceptional. You know, it's, it's such a different art form to shooting live action and there's so much planning that has to go into it. And, and it's because you're working at scale. I guess everything is a bit harder when you're working a bit smaller. And it means that everything has to be built. Everything. Mm. You don't get anything for free. You have to build your locations, your props. A fork on a table has to be built by somebody. And not only that, it's also stylized. It's not the real world. So, you, you you know, everything has to go through a certain aesthetic filter. It is a completely fabricated world. We're sat here next to Mr. Link. How, how close is the final model to your initial vision of this character? It's a shame people can't see this puppet, isn't it? <laughs> we'll have to um, describe him really well. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty close. In fact, that was one of the things that I wasn't expecting on this movie was... You know, when you first start up a production like this, you're, you're trying to find the look. And I worked with dozens of like character designers and concept artists to try and figure out what that look was. I had specific ideas in mind, but I was really having trouble finding something that did justice to, to the kind of movie that was playing in my head. And when I write, I'm always doodling and sketching because it, it the drawings that I do help inform the writing. The writing help informs the drawing. I, I'm always doing both. And I'd done the very first sketch that I drew of Link was just this very crude drawing, a very simple shape that has become known as the hairy avocado. <laughs> and it was a, you know, people liked that drawing. It was just kind of silly and very, very simple. And people kept talking about how they thought it was charming. So in the end, I went back to that and I ended up working, you know, there was there was a small group of us, Warwick Johnson Cadwell and Julianne Rawls and the three of us basically designed the characters for the, for the whole movie. So the final puppet, as challenging as it was to create, is remarkably similar to a rough sketch I did in a, in a notebook maybe 17 years ago. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, that must be amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Finally have it realized. Yeah. And also for you know thousands and thousands of people to also basically share that same... It's bizarre, really. You had. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask just about your career briefly. You, you know, you've got a long history of being a storyboard artist. You've worked on a number of very well-known things, Mr. Bean, the animated series. Oh, Corpse God, Bride. yes. Um, how did you go from you know, that, that job and working on in, in that field to now being at Leica? I, when I came into the industry, I've got to say it wasn't a great time for animation. Uh, there wasn't a huge amount going on. It was the doldrums, really. I worked on a bunch of commercials. I always wanted, I always dreamt as a kid of working for Disney. And I was very much in the 2D animation world. But there really wasn't a lot of opportunity. So when an interesting project came up, you jumped at it. And Corpse Bride was one of those things. I heard that Tim Burton was going to make another animated movie. Mm. And of course, I was like, I need to work on that. And that really changed the course of my career, I think. Because up until that point, you know, I like stop motion, but I was very much in the 2D world. And going to work on, on Corpse Bride, it, 
it really opened my mind to well the the, the challenges of stop motion but also the beauty of it because mm. i think as a story artist you you often find yourself in a room with a script in front of you and very little inspiration I mean, you've got artwork and you've got your what's going, whatever's playing through your mind. But the difference that I found on Corpse Bride was that I could go down and wander onto a set and actually physically see where the camera, where I could put the camera. And it, it, it really started to make me think more about composition, about cutting. The limitations of stop motion really added, I think, to, to my craft because you couldn't just put the camera anywhere you wanted. You had to really think about where the camera was because it was a physical camera in a physical set. And I think those limitations really strengthened my skills as a storyboard artist because you had to be very sure of why you were making a shot the way it was, if that makes sense. And after that, I, I just didn't really want to go back. I, I loved being able to, you know, walk into a, a puppet workshop and see the characters that you're drawing being created. There's something about it that is a little bit like um, walking around Santa's workshop. And then things started to change in the industry, you know. I think there was a, 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 a new age of animation. Certainly CG became the form of animation out there. And, and suddenly there were a lot of movies being made. I think because of the work that I did on Corpse Bride, Henry Selick heard about me and wanted me to storyboard on Coraline. And that was being made, that was the first movie being made at Leica in Portland, Oregon. And I wanted to work with him and I read the script and it was kind of freaky and beautiful and weird and not like anything else out there. So I kind of packed a bag and, and left for Oregon. And, you know, the funny thing is I agreed to do six months and that was 13 years ago, <laughs> you know. So it definitely worked out for me. Off the back of Coraline, I got to make Paranorman. Then off the back of Paranorman, uh, I, I started developing Missing Link. That's amazing. Yeah. Sounds like you really found your found your place. <laughs> it, it's hard. it was hard not to see how great an opportunity Leica was. For me creatively because it was so uh it is such a director driven studio mm -hmm. it's not about checking boxes it's, it's 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 about like pure storytelling and i think that's that's really exciting and doing it and like saying everything is made from scratch you know you're not yeah. beholden to any anything that's gone before it. yeah. it's creating yeah. this unique universe for each movie and i think a big part of it is that we're 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 intent on making every single movie look different from the one we've made before. There isn't a house style, and I think that's equally uh, enticing for creatives. So, Chris, what film did you choose for the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest? I chose Disney's 101 Dalmatians, the animated one. Hundred and Dalmatians has charmed audiences for generations with its irresistible tail-wagging stars, memorable story, and wonderful blend of humour and adventure. Cruella de Vil, Disney's most outrageous villain, sets the fur-raising adventure in motion when she dognaps all of Dalmatian puppies in London, including 15 from Pongo and Perdita's family. Through the power of the Twilight Bark, Pongo leads a heroic cast of animal characters on a dramatic quest to rescue them all in a story the whole family will enjoy again and again. 
So 101 Dalmatians is 76 minutes long, a really joyous runtime, produced by Walt Disney, directed by Clyde Geronimi, Hamilton Lusk and Wolfgang Roverman, originally released in 1961, and the film won a BAFTA for Best Animation. Did it now? I did not know that. I didn't even know they were doing Best Animation BAFTAs back then. <laughs> That's uh, crazy. Mm, but yeah, because I was looking, often Disney films are nominated for Academy Awards. Uh, 101 Dalmatians was not, but uh, did win a BAFTA. You know, the, one factor that I found out recently that was a surprise to me was how successful it was. So apparently in 1961, it made $144.9 million, which apparently, so I'm told, I read it on the internet, so it must be true. <laughs> in today's money, that comes to $900.3 million. Wow. That is a blockbuster. That's huge. Yeah. I think it it was a surprise to the studio as well because they'd spent so much money. The movie previous, Sleeping Beauty, cost a lot and made very little back. So it really did. It was this movie was responsible for a creative, uh, sharp right turn at the studio, and it uh, it affected the movies that they made for the next twenty years because it was so successful. Do you remember when you first watched 101 Animations? So the only way for me to get animated content when I was a kid was to wait for it to, to come to the theaters or, or see it on TV. And Disney had this kind of revolving cycle where they would re-release their classic animated movies every seven years, I think it was. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and I remember the first time that 101 Dalmatians came around. I think actually the first... Uh, Disney movie that I saw that made me think, wow, I need to work in animation was actually The Rescuers. But it was 101 Dalmatians that really caught my imagination the most. And I think that was because of the the style of it, the design of it. And um, it's long before your time. But back then, uh, you could buy these kind of like plastic uh, viewers that you hold up to your eye and you turn a, a like a crank and it would play a, a big chunky plastic cassette i can't remember that, what they were called but you could get different cassettes that were like clips of animated movies or and i had a whole stack of disney ones and i had the opening sequence of 101 dalmatians where uh, pongo and roger are walking in the park and i watched that i i held that mucky piece of plastic to my eye month after month after month, you know, slowly winding frame by frame through it so I could enjoy every single frame of 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 the of that part of the movie. And I think that was a big part of the appeal. I didn't realize it then, but this movie is it it's it's so much like a an illustration. It's it's like you know a million book illustrations strung together. You know what I mean? And I, I, that really appealed to, to me, even, even before I knew what uh, design was. It, it really connected in my head. And I think I must have been about six or seven. That's incredible. Yeah. Do, you have the, also, do you have the opportunity, you know, even though it's part of you know, a sort of a toy you had, but just to actually examine each frame yeah. of animation? Because yeah. you know, people don't, that's not readily available to people now. <laughs> yeah, it, it, was, it, was, it was wonderful. I loved that thing. And then years later, I found out that my mom had given them away to the next door neighbor. Oh. And I was very disappointed. It's probably worth lots of money now. I know. <laughs> I shall remind my mother of this. <laughs> Please do send her the podcast. Be nice. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> I guess if you if you had seen other Disney films at the time, like the animation style in Hundred One Dalmatians is so different, such a departure to the 
you know, very sort of fully formed classical art look. Yes. So I would argue that the animation style is the same, but it's the look of the thing that's different. Because Disney were, were very much about what they called the illusion of life. And I think that's why uh, they became what they were, was because the, the animation that they produced was so beautifully observed. It was living, breathing, real characters on the screen. Uh, it was observed motion, observed action, beautifully realized by um, artists who were at the top of their game. But I think what's different about 101 Dalmatians is the design of it. The, the actual, the, the, it's the line. It's the line work, it's the color, it's the angularity. And yes, the, the classical Disney before that was very soft, uh, colored lines. Sleeping Beauty, I think, was probably responsible for this angularity coming in, but this really took things in a, in a new direction. It's sort of almost, it, it feels so contemporary of, of 1961, yeah. both in terms of, you know, actually it's set in London, which is, you know, a London of 1961, but that art style yeah. um, feels very 60s. It, it feels really kind of jazzy. See. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, it feels almost, I know it's set in London, but the town almost feels a bit Parisian. Yeah. Uh, it's got that sort of style to it. And, yeah. And I really loved it. I love when you, through several points in the film, you actually see cityscapes. Yes. Uh, and, and it really takes you back to a sort of a 60s vibe. Yeah. And, and those cityscapes, I've got to admit that uh, this movie was a huge influence on Missing Link, which was part of the reason that I picked it. And it really comes down to, for me anyway, it comes down to two artists at the studio. One was Milt Carl, one of the animators, and one was Ken Anderson, who was a concept artist uh, and production designer on this movie. And I think what Ken Anderson did, he's responsible for that illustrative style. He, he did all these dense pencil drawings, so full of detail. And that became the, the, the art design of the movie. And strangely enough, at the start of Missing Link, I was referencing a lot of Ken Anderson's original drawings because I wanted to cr kind of create that, that density of line, but in three dimensions. And yeah, he, he hugely influential on me. And I think Milt Carl, for me, he is the best of the nine old men. And as you know, the nine old men were the group of Disney animators who worked on all the classics. And he, his observational drawing is still used as a benchmark for design and animation. If you go to any animation studio, you will see somewhere pinned to a wall one of Milt Carl's hand gesture sheets, you know, they're, they're just everywhere. It's, it's informed everything that's come since. I think Mark Davis, he's another of the animators on the movie, he gets a lot of attention in this movie for animating Cruella de Vil. And he was the only person who animated her. But I think the, the quality of Milt Carl's animation runs throughout this movie. It's nice to see, you know, there's old hands here who are trying something a bit different, yeah. being a bit experimental. Uh, I did read, I don't know how true it was, but Disney wasn't actually a fan of the design of the film and sort of put Ken Anderson a, a distance after this. I, I think, uh, like, Disney really... I think he was probably still smarting from Sleeping Beauty mm. because he they really went to town on that and he wanted that to be like a, a living uh, tapestry. Mm. And I think because it was... Uh, I think in some ways, well, they, people say that um, audiences at the time were, were left a little cold by it. It was maybe too designed for 
audiences at that time. So it turned people off. So I, I suspect he was, he was a little bruised from that experience. And this was such a departure. Yeah, I could see how that could smart. Anita, darling, how are you? Miserable, darling, as usual, perfectly wretched. A lot of people who worked on the film also credit Bill Pete for the story artist. There's an amazing feature on the DVD actually where they put the storyboards over like animated sequences from the film and it's it's just like exactly spot on. Mm. As someone who's done that job in the past, you know, do, do you see how important they are for this film? Bill Pete is a was a master and for me storyboarding you know, I, I was a storyboard artist for many years and uh, when I'm directing a movie, I am basically the head of story myself. And I have a very buttoned-down approach to storyboarding. And it, it's similar to what you just described. I want the storyboards to be as accurate as possible. Because really, in animation, you make the movie several times before it's finished. And the first version that you make is purely storyboards. And that's how you know whether it's working or not. If you can show an animatic, we call them, uh, if you can show a feature-length animatic, which is just storyboards, and people can be compelled by it and entertained by it, then all you can do is improve on that when the animation starts going in. The interesting thing for me uh, is that this time in Disney, and, and all the time before that, they weren't ever really working from a script. Certainly, 101 Dalmatians was based on a book, Dodie Smith's book, and of course, the that would have been adapted, but there was less reliance on a scripted page and a lot of the movie was figured out in storyboards. And that was the case from Snow White onwards. You would have a room full of guys just brainstorming cool ideas. It is a way to, to make an animated movie that's fantastic. It's not something that we do now because it's it's kind of chaos in a way you know it's just like you can go anywhere and i think that's what's interesting about looking at old disney movies is structurally they're all over the place and certainly this movie is too you know the first act is about nothing yeah. you know it, the plot doesn't even kick in until about half an hour and it's only 76 minutes long mm. oftentimes it was these movies are kind of interesting scenes strung together by a thin plot and they're still very entertaining. Like, I love how unusual this makes these movies. And, and 101 Dalmatians is one of my favorites because it is so simple. It's such a strong, simple idea. Yeah, if, <laughs> nowadays, if we were shown this as a, in script form, oh my goodness, it would have so many notes. You wouldn't get it made. That's the thing, like going back to the Disney classics, they are, they... And, and how brief the runtimes are, it does feel like they're just exploring an idea yeah. over 76 minutes in this case. You know, there's not really the typical three-act structure. Sometimes the yeah. ending's almost sort of bolted on, yeah. uh, almost because they're having so much fun in the middle, maybe, with a yeah, big yeah. dramatic scene. Yeah. Uh, like in this, in 101 Dimensions, it feels like the most attention has really been given to that epic chase towards yeah. the end of the film when they've actually got all 101 Dimensions running away from Cruella de Vil, and it's a bit like The Great Escape almost, you know. To... <laughs> I'm glad you said that, because I mean, that's my favorite aspect of this movie, is that it really feels like uh, a thriller. Mm. I, I feel like this movie is probably the Disney equivalent of a Hitchcock movie. Mm -hmm. It feels like Saboteur or The Lady Vanishes, you know. 
And there's some genuinely like suspenseful scenes in this, and that comes in in the chase stuff. Certainly, when when the puppies are disguised as uh, black Labradors, yep. <laughs> and the dripping ice is removing the disguise. Really suspenseful, cool stuff. It's almost like a war movie as well. Uh, so many of the characters have, have like military demeanors and names. It, it's great. I love that part of it. You're right. Suspense is the right word. Like it's so tense when also because the the feat the task is epic. You have to get oh, 99 puppies <laughs> across the country in yeah. the snow, extremely harsh weather, without this man with woman. a psycho. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's like chasing after you in this this amazing car. It's so well animated. The vehicles they built in card and shot them and rotoscoped them. I believe. There's a, again on the DVD. There's this amazing feature which I, it blew my mind. I didn't even know that was a thing with 2D animation to actually build 3D models. Uh, and then I think they said they said they shot them in slow motion and then animated over the top. Yeah, and uh, they look so good. Uh, it's uh, I mean, as an animator, is that sort of pure animation nerd paradise? <laughs> it is. I mean, I, in the animation industry, rotoscoping is often you know looked down upon, but it works so well with the look of this movie because creating those vehicles out of card gave them an angularity that that really fits in and because they're rotoscoping them because they're drawing over the top of them everything in this movie feels like it's of the same world and quite often in animation even in disney animation you know the characters would feel subtly different from the backgrounds or props would feel different from the characters but everything has got that and it's to do with the line quality the xerography everything feels like it belongs in this movie Sounds like a number. Three fives of 13. Uh, uh, That's 15, sir. 15? Of course, 15. Yes, dots, spotted puddings, poodles. No, no, puddles. Puddles, sir? 15 spotted puddles stolen. Oh, bother dash. The core of this film, 101 dogs. (laughs) <laughs> do you feel, and you know, Dalmatians, lots very detailed models. Do you feel for the animation team working on these on 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 these puppies? I do, and and obviously, you know, I I can imagine when they first pitched this idea at the studio, there were a lot of animators who were probably you know, pooping themselves. But of course, they they tackled the issue with xeroxing, which was the first time that they ever did that. Yeah, I I love it. I love the ambition of it. And there are, like you say, there are those great shots in it. And certainly when they're hiding in Hell Hall, where the the screen is just dominated by by puppies. It, I mean, what's better than that? Then because of the you know the, the Disney's attention to detail, especially with animals. They look perfect. Like when they're running across the snow, they run like a real dog. Yeah, yeah. So well observed. Again, I think that there's the the animators on it are just at the top of their game. Yeah, I, I know. And and as a kid, again, those were the the shots which I they just wowed me and they made me want to work in animation. And I didn't know why it wowed me, but it did. And I think it does come down to observ- observation because you completely believe that this simple drawing on screen is is an animal, is a moving, living animal. So a good counterbalance to Cruella de Vil, who is almost like she's from a different film. Uh, like she's so <laughs> expressive. Yeah. She's got some great lines in the film. The voice acting is incredible. But that character design is is truly iconic. Oh, yeah. And people still remember it, you know. People, it, it's still an influence on on design today. The cheekbones on her are something else, you know. That and that was Mark Davis who did, you know, he 
developed the character and animated it all. It's probably not my favorite Disney villain. She is fantastic. Interestingly enough, and it does relate to this movie, Milk Carl, after seeing the success of Cruella, he was given the villain in The Rescuers, Madame Medusa. And I think he was a pretty competitive guy. And he, he wanted to outdo Mark Davis. He wanted to make a villain that was more flamboyant and expressive and crazy than uh, and, and well animated than Cruella, and that's where Madame Medusa came from. But she paled in comparison, I think, as a character. I don't think she's quite as iconic. Yeah, I thought again some amazing touches. Oh yeah, yeah. I like with um, Cruella how she unravels throughout the film. Like she gets more sort of cartoon-like. She's less realistic when she's driving her car, and her eyes get really big and red. <laughs> yeah, and like throbbing veins. Yeah, <laughs> and and the other thing is she's smoking throughout the whole movie. That green, like highly stylized smoke. And she puts out a cigarette in a cupcake. That is, <laughs> that is a true villain. What a monster. <laughs> yeah, and, and actually, in terms of villainy, like I watched it again uh, before doing this, and I, you know, I've watched it many times over the years, but in t- today's context, it's brutal. What she's planning to do is really horrific. And they talk quite casually about it, the villains, like you know, clubbing the puppies to death and skinning them. I mean, it's horrible. It's, and again, as a kid, you're sort of like, yeah, yeah, she just wants to kill 101 puppies and make a coat. <laughs> I but don't now know. you're like, oh my God. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They're dogs, no. Uh, yeah, no, she's a real threatening force. Like, as she, she keeps popping over to the house and, yeah, where are the spots? When can I have them? When yeah. can I have them? Um, yeah. And it's kind of mad that Roger and Anita are sort of a bit like just oblivious to the fact that she is obviously evil. <laughs> that, that's, that's the thing. It's like, how did Anita and Cruella be, ever become friends in the first place? Like, what world is that? It's, uh, yeah. They meet at school? <laughs> I was wondering if she like, worked for her or something. Yeah. It's never really explored. <laughs> no. But yeah, definitely an uh, interesting relationship there. I love Horace and Jasper. What a great set of bumbling sidekicks. And actually, I think animation is so good. If you have a very scary villain, mm. having these sort of sidekicks who can be a bit more comical, it's such a gift. Yeah, and they do some pretty scary things. But you're right, because they're kind of buffoonish, it, it, it takes the air out of it. And that's something that we're always doing because we, we make some fairly intense uh, movies for kids. And it's always that balancing act of when things get too intense, you always got to burst that bubble and, and offer a little bit of humor or a little bit of comedy to, to lighten the load a little. But Horace and Jasper were also big influences on Missing Link. Even as a kid, I remember how amazingly stylized they were. Like Jasper's legs are so ridiculously long. And yet he moves and acts like a believable human being. And that is absolutely something that I wanted to achieve in Missing Link with hyper stylized characters that still move believably. And their voices are so good as well. <laughs> oh, and it, it, those two, though, it's the Dick Van Dyke school of British. You know, so, some of the lines that they have. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I love it, but it's also like cringeworthy cockney just made me laugh a lot They're, them and the housekeeper they have that amazing scene where they sort of break into the house yeah. and everybody's going for the dick van dyke school of a british accent yeah <laughs> yeah oh it's fantastic interestingly though i mean considering it's an american movie there is something about this movie that feels quintessentially british and i think Again, it comes down to design. I think the production designer did a really fantastic job at getting the the feel of like the British countryside. And I think it's to do with the muted color palette, the designs of the trees and and uh, the you know the fields. But it, it feels British.
there we have it 101 Dalmatians is in the 90 minutes or less film fest very pleased to have our second Disney film in the festival after Dumbo lots more 90 minutes less Disney films for us to choose from in future at this screening of 101 Dalmatians uh, we'd love to invite you along to introduce the film if you could invite one guest living or, or deceased uh, to, to come to the screening who would you invite uh, to, to introduce this film with you well based on what you said I wouldn't invite Walt Disney because he'd probably be pissed off who would I invite? Do you know, I, I'm such a fan of Milk Carl. I, I would want to invite him along, although he'd probably be, apparently he was a bit grumpy. Yeah. So he might just sit and moan about the movie the whole time. <laughs> choose between Walt Disney or Milk Carl. <laughs> yeah. Both yeah. of whom are grumpy. <laughs> well, that's a nice thing. Maybe seeing it with the audience would, you know, yeah. um, liven them up a little bit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and do you think this film could or should be longer than 90 minutes? It could be, but it shouldn't be. I mean, really, when when you look at it, if you if you if you take a step back from it and and just look at the the rhythm of the story and the story structure, there's barely anything there, and I like that. I like the simplicity of it. I think if you made it longer, you would have to you would have to start fiddling around with subplots and or or, or fleshing out characters that don't really need fleshing out anymore. So I think it's the perfect length. That's exactly what I like to hear on the show. <laughs> Let's keep it as it is, guys. Let's celebrate the 76-minute long picture. Well, thank you so much for talking to us, Chris. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Uh, thank you for missing Link as well. It was a lot of fun watching that in the cinemas. It's now out on DVD and streaming and all of that good stuff. So, yeah. listeners, if you have not seen Missing Link, please go buy it, download it, watch it. It's incredible. Is there anywhere people should uh, go online to see what you're up to next? Oh, uh, well, I mean, I've, I'm just coming to the end of, you know, uh, finishing this movie off and getting it out there. I am doing a bit of writing, but it's very early days yet. I think I need a vacation. Yeah, so that nothing to look out for just yet, but Leica are continuing to work. There is another movie in the works there, which I'm not allowed to talk about. But yes, watch out for something that will be... Uh, equally as fascinating and different as you've come to expect from our previous movies. That's very exciting. I'm, I'm, I, I can't wait. Well, yeah, you need to get through that pile of award screeners, like the sounds of things. I do. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to watch some movies. Thank you for listening. Subscribe to the show on your podcatcher of choice and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. As an independent podcast, it really helps. We're also available on 90minfilmfest.com. That's 90minfilmfest.com. You can contact us there or on Twitter and Instagram at 90minfilmfest. The show is produced by Louise Owen and me, Sam Clements. The show is edited by Louise Owen with sound mixing and additional editing by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostwick and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. You mean like maybe 90 minutes or less? Maybe. Well, I just A lot of people, when they've got a lot of films to choose from, they often gravitate towards either the thing they want to see the most. But if there's two things you want to see the most, which one's shorter? That's true, <laughs> actually. And the whole thing with the 90, the 90 minutes or less, that's particularly pertinent for animation because that's see, 90 minutes or less is seen as like the template for an animated movie. Certainly when we're making movies, 
uh, I am always aiming for a 90 minute runtime. The first time I cut together reels, it's like if it's over 90 minutes, I'm like, ah, I've got to work on this.